That's what made it a sacrifice that was acceptable, that was pleasing. Uh, I'll give you just a little bit of a point of reference. He uses the same words in another letter, too, where he says, Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. That's the type of thought that he has in mind here. Okay, so let's just step back a little bit and, and try and distill what Paul is talking about as he's thinking about this relationship. Uh, he, he's acknowledging I have a need. I need support. But he's flipped it on its head. And he said, my need is the tool that God is using to mature you. And the, the investment, the support, the giving, the sacrifice that diminishes you is ultimately to your credit. And that... That is what I'm after, is the credit that comes from the sacrifice that you've made. I want you to get the credit for stepping up and meeting this need. When he points them to Christ, verse 19, my God will supply in the future, you're diminished now, but he will supply in the future every need that you have according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. So the cycle sort of continues itself where they've sacrificed to give and to provide. And he says, the one who provided the ultimate sacrifice, that's where your supply will come from. And Paul uses a lot of what seems to be flowery language, but when he says, God will supply whatever you need according to Christ's riches. The word according is interesting. He's saying he's going to do it in a way that is worthy of Christ. So he's going to meet your need, but understand the way he meets your need is equally important because the manner in which he does it will ultimately be worthy of Christ. It's a very high promise that he uh, points them to. So do you see the cycle? Right? Paul has a need. I'm going to flip the need on its head. I'm calling for growth and support. I'm reflecting on what you've done. And the kind of sacrificial giving that you've engaged in, that's to your credit, that's to your maturity, that's to your growth. And that's really what I'm seeking. Right? That's a little bit strange, but that's the point here. First point, God uses a community of Christian believers, have the needs on the one hand met by the community on the other to the point that it's costly and sacrificial and maybe a little bit weird. God uses that sort of um, strangeness, that sort of self-sacrificing heart, to serve one another, to catch people's attention, right? It illustrates the vitality and the life of Jesus in a way that piques people's curiosity. Why, why, why would you act that way? You have a family to take care of. Why would you give that up to support somebody who's hundreds of miles away? It invites questions, and it points people ultimately to Jesus. Before I move on to point two, I want to take just a moment to talk a little bit about the elders in the church. I'll be brief. When I say talk about, I'm going to say something positive, I think. Um, If you ask them to a man, they would admit they are fallible, that they uh, do not have their acts together, that they are works in process. Nonetheless, they are committed to the Lord's work here. Uh, They yearn to see God glorified in the lives of these people. Uh, I've, I've sat in on these meetings, and occasionally you see one call out an area of maturity or immaturity or of growth or the need for growth in another. And in gentleness, 
They'll encourage, they'll exhort, frustrate, irritate one another uh, because they love the Lord and they want to see um, the personality, the fragrance of Christ built up in the church. And it's important for you to know that that is the heart and that that is the cadence and that is the commitment of the men that serve here. So it's also a privilege for me to get to sit in with them. And so I just want to say thank you. All right. So I can imagine maybe the next thought to say, well, how in the world is that kind of living really possible where I give to the point where I'm diminished? I don't have what I need. It's really not sustainable. And Adam, the elders are probably on their best behavior anyway when they come together. It's church, but you can't keep that up, right? Um, how could you possibly do that? That's a subject to point two. We know that community is built up of individuals, and so Paul now starts talking in individual terms. So jump back again. If you go to verses 10 and 11, where he's rejoicing that they have revived their concern, and he says, At the end of 10, you were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. And then, not that I'm speaking of being in need. You can hear a little bit of tension in his voice, where when the subject of money comes up, it can be a little bit awkward. So he's not... He's not suggesting he doesn't have a need. He's just saying that's, that's not what I'm speaking of. That's not what I'm focused on. Why? Why is he not speaking or focused on the fact that he has a need? And he continues on. The reason for it, because I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance, and need. Right? He has learned what it takes to be content. We shouldn't miss the fact, the fact that it took Paul time to learn. Uh, he had a very dramatic story, very dramatic encounter with Christ where his life was changed and he came to Christ. Um, the fullness of Jesus was revealed to him, but it took him years potentially to learn the secret that we're going to spend a little bit of time talking about. If it took Paul time, it's going to take us time as well to learn this secret of being content. And he uses that word in verse 12. Secret has the idea of just, it's not obvious. This is not the way that we think normally. This is not something that's intuitive. And even as a Christian, it wasn't clear to Paul at the outset. It's something that he had to learn to understand. True contentedness is not natural. We look for all sorts of things to make us content before we eventually learn what it is to be content, ultimately, in Jesus. So before we get into some of the details, let's be clear on what he is not saying, okay? Philippians 4.13 is a memory verse in a lot of weight rooms and locker rooms. You know, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. 400 pounds, I can do it. No. No, you can't. Um, This verse and this teaching is not a platform where we bring God our agenda and say, okay, I'm going to do all things and it's your job to make sure it happens. Okay, it is not a platform where we bring our agenda to the Lord. Uh, that has a lot to say to some of the generational mindsets that, that sort of come and go over time. So in a traditionalist mindset, folks who are older than I am, contentedness would come from working hard, providing for a family, raising good kids, making a contribution. I can be content because what I've done counts and it's worth something. On the flip side, there's a younger generation that is very expressionist. 
Right? These folks are generally a little younger, and the idea there is as long as I find what fulfills me, it may be a social justice cause, it may be a whole slew of different um, partners, right? relationships as they go through, it may be a charity, it may be world travel, but the idea is as best I can, I want to experience and see and taste the world, and as a result, I'll be content. Paul is saying no to both of those, that your contentedness is not in the circumstance or in the work or the accomplishment or what it is that you're after. It's in something else altogether. So instead of looking to those circumstances, right, the kid who has his act together, the experience of a lifetime that I'm going to remember for all my days, when those circumstances go wrong, they crush people. They crush people. You can't put your contentment on whatever your desired circumstances are. His point in this letter is that God is using circumstances to teach you, to teach us, to teach me, that contentedness comes from something else, right? It comes from Christ. So the, the circumstances don't dictate, they don't drive, they don't determine whether we're content. They're the tool to teach us contentedness. Right? That's a mind shift. Right? That is the secret. That is what Paul is talking about here. Uh, when he says that he is drawing from Christ's strength, I can do all things from him who, through him who strengthens me. Uh, the word in verse 12, too, that he uses for content, just to give you a flavor, it's, it's the word we use for autocrat, right? a ruler who doesn't listen to anyone. Right? I'm going to rule with an iron fist. I don't care what anyone else thinks. And that has sort of a negative flavor to us. That's the kind of contentedness that Paul is talking about is it's independent. It doesn't matter what other people say. I will draw on Christ. It can't be touched. It can't be harmed. And that's, that's where true contentment is going to come from. It's, it's important to stop and acknowledge that we get hurt. Right? There are real hurts in this church. There are some real pressures. Uh, I mentioned Kids can be a source of joy or a source of pain. Jobs come and go. Sickness, death, illness. There are real pains. Uh, Injustice. I could absolutely have been treated wrongly and unfairly. And that can well up, right? That can make me angry. So those things are real. And Paul is not saying you need to be a stoic and to harden yourself and to pretend like it doesn't matter or you don't feel the pain. He says elsewhere that we rejoice in sufferings. Both things happen at the same time. It's a strange mixture that the contentedness we have in Christ is what supports us and sustains us when those other things happen. So I want to be very clear. This is not just sort of a buck up, stiff upper lip sort of stoic thing. This is tapping in to the Lord Jesus in a way that Yeah, I can feel the pain, but I can process it because nobody can touch my relationship with Christ. Think about this on a little bit broader scale, for instance, when we start thinking about circumstance and pain and suffering and stuff like that. Uh, Because we, we wonder why a lot. Why would God let this happen? Why am I in this scenario? Um, At the highest level, we know that Christ had a purpose when he came Satan was opposed. He tempted him, said, you need to abandon what God is after. Come out into the wilderness. I'm going to give you some other options. Christ rejected them, followed the Father all the way to the cross, and died. And in that moment, in the moment of death, 
you can sort of speculate. Satan thought he'd really accomplished something. The people hated him. The rulers killed him. The plan is over. The point here is that God gave just enough leash in order to bring about his own will. Right? The, the, the very act of murder is what God flipped to say that is the act of redemption. Sometimes God gives reasons and we can see why circumstances are what they are. And in other times he says, no, no, you're not going to understand. Right? And so what scripture is very clear on is that God works all things for the good of those that he loves, those who are called according to his purpose. But there are plenty of examples where people don't see it, they don't understand it, and there is no promise in scripture that we will. Joseph, way back when, he got some inkling of why he had been put in jail and said, God used for good what you intended for evil. Job, on the other hand, never did. Job had no idea what the calamity that came upon him was for, and yet God used it to teach us for thousands of years as a result. But Job was in the dark. So the sooner we're willing to sort of approach and understand that, yeah, God is working, that there is something here that is inscrutable, and I'm not going to know. I'm not promised an answer to the reason why, but yet I know enough of his character to trust him in that this is the sort of thing that Paul is pressing on us. And he's saying, you need to come to terms. That's what your circumstances are for. It's like a forge, right? They're there to help us learn to come to terms with whether Christ is worth it. I want to give you an example here. Uh, you guys may know the name John Bunyan. He wrote Pilgrim's Progress, a famous, famous book. Uh, he came into a lot of opposition for his preaching and was ultimately given the choice, stop preaching or go to jail. He chose to go to jail because he couldn't countenance the thought of giving up his preaching and the choice was there on a daily basis. He had the ability every day to walk out of jail if he would acknowledge, I'll stop. When he made this choice to go to jail, he was married. He had kids, one of whom was blind, a young daughter. And so you can kind of think through this thought process, this conversation. I'm sorry, hon, I know you need me. I know our daughter needs me. I can't do it. Right? I can't give up the preaching so I'm going to go to jail, right? That's a tough choice. So listen to his words here. I never had in all my life so great an inlet into the word of God as now in prison. Those scriptures that I saw nothing in before were made in this place and in this state to shine upon me. Jesus Christ also was never more real and apparent than now. Here, I've seen him and I've felt him indeed, I've had sweet sights of forgiveness of my sins in this place and of my being with Jesus in another world. I never knew what it was for God to stand by me, not get me out of prison, stand by me at all times. And at every offer of Satan to afflict me as I have found him since I came here. He talked about the contentment that Paul is talking about, right? He found it in that prison, making a choice that he couldn't give up the name of Christ, even if it cost him his family. That's a tough choice. 
So that's the point. That's the second part here in point two. For those people who have decided, believers who have decided that Christ really is worth it, all things, it means all things. That's the sign of life in the individual that God uses to display the vitality in the life of Christ to people around them. He wants folks to see that kind of life and vitality and ask questions and wonder why and be drawn in to see Jesus, to get to know him, to understand why would someone act that way? What is it that's so important to them? That's point two. Some of you may be thinking, well, you know what? Point two sounded a whole lot like point one, right? You'd be right. This passage is telling us that God uses the individual. He uses the community to point people to Jesus. Right? That there is a sign there in that behavior, in that life, that points. What is it pointing towards? We're kind of getting at things indirectly here. What is it really pointing towards? That's the subject of point three. The short answer, I'm going to come back and try and explain this. The short answer, when you look at verses 19 and 20, is that there is a shared glory that the Father and the Son have together that these things point toward. Uh, But glory is a very church-like word. Okay, so let's come back and understand what he's really getting at. Uh, like I said, glory sounds very religious. Uh, it's, a, it's a small word, four letters, to get at the concept of glory, doxa. Uh, the basic idea, if you were to try and boil it down, is it's an, it's an opinion that we form about God. It's who he is, and it's what he does that form our opinion and our esteem and our understanding of him. So at, up to this point, like I said, it's been a little indirect, but the way that we relate to one another in community reflects our understanding of God's glory. Now, what does that mean? Right? How does that look? Well, My concern for you, my concern whether it's worth it to me to take time out of my day, you to take time out of your day, where we gather together, where we encourage one another, where we point out sin, where we encourage one another to come closer to Christ, that ultimately comes from the fact that I know that Christ is worth it. On the flip side, if it's not because I want to do something else, I've got other plans, this is inconvenient to carve out some time for you, well, it's because I've lost sight of the glory of God, and therefore I don't care enough about the community to push and to point towards Jesus. The same thing is true on a more individual level, where Paul has said, I have learned the secret, being in plenty, being in want, high, low, I have learned this secret of what it means to be content in Christ. He understood and is encouraging us in the same way to see circumstance as a tool that God uses. It's a tool in his work belt. So the attitude of our heart towards our own circumstances is an attitude towards God. So when I complain, when I cuss, when I yell, when I'm rebellious, when I humble myself, when I confess dependence, 
when I wonder what God is doing, when I'm trying to understand who he is and it doesn't make sense, all of those sort of multitude of attitudes ultimately reflect what we think of God. And I want to be very clear, Scripture invites the seeker's heart to know God and to draw closer to understand his ways. So there is nothing wrong with wondering, God, what are you doing? Right? He is inviting us to come closer in the community or through our own circumstances. I do feel like a little bit of, uh, not a little bit, a lot, like a little boy sort of jumping into the deep end of the pool here when I talk about God's glory. I'm not going to do it justice, right? We sort of need floaties on our arms to jump in to the deep end of the pool. Um, and so what I did is I just borrowed. Uh, C.S. Lewis has a couple of points that I think are right on point here. Uh, his first one, when he's talking about the idea of glory, is that we see something beautiful, we see something worthy, we have an opinion that it's beautiful and that it's worthy, and I really can't get to the root of it and give it full voice without calling somebody else and say, have you seen that sunrise? That is an unbelievable thing. Or if grandparents gather together over a newborn and say, look at that. Look what God has done. Right? Beauty and glory find their fullness because we've got to tell somebody else about it. Those words, still limited, So I'm going to read a short passage, a little excerpt out of uh, his talk. This was a talk he gave quite a while ago now. It's in your notes if you want to read along with me. This is, I think, powerful stuff. We do not want merely to see beauty, though God knows even that is bounty enough. We want something else which we can hardly put into words to be united with the beauty that we see to pass into it and to receive it into ourselves, to bathe in it, to become part of it. For if we take the imagery of Scripture seriously, right? if we believe that God will one day give us the morning star, cause us to put on the splendor of the sun, then we may surmise that both the ancient myths and the modern poetry so false as to history may be very near the truth as prophecy. At present, we are on the outside of the world. We're on the wrong side of the door. We discern the freshness and the purity of the morning, but they don't make us fresh or pure. But all the leaves of the New Testament are wrestling with the rumor that it will not always be so. Someday, God willing, we will get in. That's the source of life that Paul is talking about in verse 19. My God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory. I have seen the need that he meets in people's lives. I have formed an opinion. I have esteem in my heart for who God is for what he's doing. And he will meet your needs. This is something we can't fully exhaust because we cannot fully exhaust God. But by his own grace, he gives us a hunger and a taste for it, right? He builds more of it into us over time where we want more and more of him and less and less of the other stuff. 
Hopefully you recognize that pattern in your own life. And I'm at a little bit of a loss on how to explain it, but I am grateful for the fact that he lets us experience it. And we have the promise, right, that more is coming. That what we see dimly now, we will see face-to-face later. So another example to try and get at it a little bit. Uh, As a bachelor, when I thought about what I needed in my living room, if I had a recliner and a working TV, that was about it. It worked. Uh, 20 years now, having been married, I start to think a little bit differently based on the one whom I know. Say, you know what? We need a throw pillow in here. (laughs) I, I can see the need for maybe some blankets and some cushions and some stuff on the walls. That is not normal, natural thinking. But my heart and my mind are changed, you know, because of the one that I know. If you press into that example just a little bit more, uh, if you come to our house and you feel that it's hospitable, understand it's not me. (laughs) Amen. Right? But because one takes on the characteristics of the other... There's a warmth and a hospitality that sort of blossoms. Okay? That's the picture here. Where we, we see God revealed in Scripture. We see his works. We understand something of the personality and the motives. And it changes who we are. So here's the point. As we offer ourselves to God over time... Our minds are transformed, and through testing, we eventually discern some of what God's will is. That's Romans 12, verse 2. We begin to understand his ways. We begin to understand his character. And the only reasonable response we have when that starts to happen is praise. He's worth it. And that's exactly what Paul does when he starts thinking about the needs that we have and the supply that comes That's why in verse 20, he just stops the letter, goes straight into praise. To our God and Father be glory forever. May he disclose more of himself to us. May we have the right opinion of him, and may that never stop. May it go on forever. So let's pull it all together here. Hopefully you see what Paul is describing That life in the Christian community, life in the individual of the Christian, and the source of all that life is the glory that exists between the Father and the Son. That's why so many people have identified joy as the theme of the letter here, the letter to the Philippians, because when we understand who God is and what he's doing and what he's about, joy sort of scratches the surface of something much deeper. So there might be other words, good words that we can use, but probably no better words to get at what God is doing and who he is and the fact that we get to understand him. That that truth moves south, right? It starts here, moves there. And that's how he ends this letter, focused on the one who is the theme of his life. His final uh, benediction, his blessing to the church 
This last verse in 23 says, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. A couple of things to notice as we wrap this up. Uh, When he says, Grace of the Lord Jesus be with your spirit, your is plural, right? The church, all the people. Spirit is singular, just one. The reason for that, because all the Christian brothers and sisters are in lockstep with the glory of God. So the many tap into the one. And that union, right, that grace, that's to be the character, the personality, the fragrance of the church. That, that is our same legacy. That is our same call here at Grace Church. Brothers, sisters, we share the same spirit of grace together now that they did then with the exact same God, the exact same glory slowly being revealed and built into us over time, that's why we come together. To say, have you seen God lately? Have you worshipped lately? Let me tell you what he's doing now. That is our call. That is our namesake. It's because we are pressing deeper into our affections for the Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, what a, uh, what a wonderful letter. Beyond that, Lord, how wonderful you are. We look forward to the day where we gather around with people from all walks of life, all parts of history, all sorts of races, all sorts of backgrounds, all of whom who have become convinced and persuaded of your goodness, of your majesty, of your glory. God, may we be persuaded and settled and shaped by it now. May we begin to take on the characteristics of the Lord Jesus Christ because he is so much better than we are. And our fullness and our life and our hope are in you. And so God, may you demonstrate your own life through us. And if people happen to take notice, it's because you are worthy, not to us, Lord, but to to your name be the praise and the glory. So help us to yield to that. Help us to embrace it. And God, we, we long for the day when you come to take us home. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.